What do you get when the audacious and the therapist collide? A crash course in unpolished therapy. Rachel Silvercone and Dr. Boca aren't afraid to spin out of control, tackling all the tough talk. Their weekly sesh meets at the corner of Audacity and Advice, where their wheels and yours get turned upside down. Hey guys, happy Wednesday. It is Rachel Silver Cohen. So you know what that means. It's another episode where we have ditched the couch. We have grabbed the mics. We are breaking down all the unpolished wreckage on the corner of audacity and advice. Good morning, Dr. Boga. How is my favorite co-host? Oh, I love that. I love being your favorite co-host. I am doing great. How are you doing this Wednesday? I am better that we are now together for our mornings. I always love our mornings. It's been a week, I have to be honest. Yes. It's been the unpolishedness of life. We say it tongue in cheek a lot, but then when we're faced with adversity, we kind of have to take pause and Mm -hmm. start to practice some of the stuff that we preach all the time. I know it's not real therapy, but over the course of our 90 some odd episodes, I have really taken some, some good stock in our conversations. And I can't really bullshit a bullshitter anymore. I have to at least start (laughs) acknowledging some of the great stuff we've talked about and things you've taught me and even with the whole slew of our guests. So that's what I've been doing this week. You know, raising kids is a tough, tough job. And it's one none of us really know how to do. We all go in blindly. We don't go to school for it. We don't go to graduate school for it. We can say we read books, but we kind of just probably skip to the fun chapters. And I don't know if there's a test because if we take the test, most of us fail anyway. And it's been a challenge on this end around here. It's, you know, raising kids, not for the faint of heart. I don't want to throw in the whole like single mom thing too, but that's... You can. You totally can. Okay. So thank you. So (laughs) let's throw that into single parenting role makes it a little bit more challenging. Not to say anyone should get the violin out for me, but teenagers, teenagers, boys, girls, I'm not even suggesting that one sex is harder or easier than the other, but hormones, emotions, stress, it's a struggle to juggle. Correct. It is. It is a struggle to juggle. And I think you nailed it. There is no rule book for this. There are no directions. These kids just pop out of us and we're like given this gift and they say go. Right. And the reality is the test is every single day is that test. And so I get it. And I'm sorry that the week was so tough for you, but I think all of our our listeners can relate to it. I know I can relate to it. It is not for the week for sure. Absolutely. So let's share a story with our listeners out there. We always love small world stories and in the big bad world of just so much pressure and anxiety and keeping up with the Joneses, even if that is just from the teenager level, there is something to be said for those warm feelings where you're like, oh my God, like how great is this? Well, the other day to the listeners out there, I had said to Dr. Boca that my son is in school and one of his teachers that he has a real, real special relationship with, they kind of bonded out of the gate and my son 
both of my kids for that matter, feel connected and they enjoy the coursework and so on and so forth, that I guess something about the podcast had come up. And I guess my son suggested to the teacher, you know, hey, you should be on the podcast or, or something along those lines. And when I reiterated it to you, you said what, Dr. Boga? I said, wait, what does he teach? And you went on to say that he teaches debate. And I said, wait a minute, are we talking about Zach Goldstein? And you were like, yeah, Mr. G. And I said, I don't know who Mr. G is, but I know who Zach Goldstein is. And she's like, you're like, who? How do you know him? So the long and short of it is that my children have gone to camp for a billion years. And there is this individual who had been there for many summers who was like the camp big brother to my children. They loved this guy, Zach. And having been somebody who was around the campus quite often, I got to know Zach in that capacity. And I saw just how amazing he was with not only my children, but the entire group of kids at the camp, as well as just his way of managing everything and everyone in a fun and exciting and meaningful way. And I was always captivated by that. And so when you were telling me about this teacher that your son has such a great relationship with, of course, it's Zach, of course. And he wants to be on our podcast. Yeah, definitely. So the best part of the story is that I take it upon myself to text Zach and he had no idea that I was Dr. Book. <laughs> that was the best part of this. But alas, we put it all together for him. He has said yes, and he is here today. So without further ado, I am going to let you all know who Zach Goldstein is and why we love him. Zach was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but he's lived in the South Florida area for the last 15 years. He has two bachelor's degrees, one in English language and one in secondary education from Florida Atlantic University. He also has a master's degree in educational leadership from American College. Zach has been a teacher and a coach in the Palm Beach County School District for 12 years, a programming director for a local summer camp, a religious school director, and community activist. He has dedicated his life to working with children and teenagers with the goal of empowering them to make a positive impact on their communities and deepening their understanding of the world around them. So without further ado, I would like to introduce everybody to Zach Goldstein. Hi, Zach. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Who is this Zach Goldstein guy that you keep talking about? He sounds really great. He kind of is. He kind of is. So we're so happy that you can be with us today because I really think that you get a perspective of children and teenagers, you know, listening to your bio from like across every part of the community and apart all the age brackets. I really think that this could be a wonderful dialogue that we have today where you can kind of help us parents, these clueless parents, when they all come back and they're like, oh my God, I love Zach or they, I love Mr. G or whatever they call you. And I'm like, but he's saying the same shit that I'm saying. Why don't you love me that way? And I'm sure, Rachel, I'm sure you can attest to that same experience. Yeah, totally. And I, too, want to just mimic what Lori said in thanking you for being here. It, I'm having an outer body experience because I have heard about you for so many years now. And my little guy, my younger son, too, has the privilege of learning from you as well now. So I'm thrilled. But to be able to put a voice with a voice 
a face with a face as we're on Zoom now. And also a name, you know, I know you first as Mr. Goldstein, then that turned into Mr. G, then that just turned, we dropped the Mr. and it's G, but you are a staple topic of conversation in this unpolished household for good and for bad, I suppose. So (laughs) thanks for being here. No, it's really my pleasure. First and foremost, thank you for having me. I'm a huge fan of the show. My wife and I listen all the time. We love listening to two of you. It is crazy how small of a world this is. But yes, I have worked with both of your children, both of you and both of your children. They're amazing kids. And I have had a really great career so far and have been really privileged to work with a wide variety of ages and backgrounds. And it's really been a pleasure and I think lucky for me to be able to do what I love to do. Zach, what motivated you from the jump when you first started your educational journey to become an educator? So I tell students all the time that life can be really hard, but it's not complicated. You just have to figure out what you love and then find a way to get paid for it. Mm -hmm. So I was super lucky. I knew really early on that I wanted to be a teacher. So I was super motivated. I went through school. I got, you know, the degrees that I needed, got my master's degree, and I was just really anxious to get started and get to work with teaching and just sort of contributing to education as best I could to make a positive impact and to empower kids. And it's the same motivation that I had to work at the summer camp that Dr. B was talking about. There's just, for me at least, nothing more rewarding than showing kids or teenagers exactly what it is that they're capable of, because more often than not, they have no idea. So it's just fun. And I love what you just said. And I say this to my patients all the time. You know, you can have vocational interests and you can have a vocational interest. And if your vocational interest or your what we call job is not something that you love doing, you have to find something in your life that you do love doing. And in your situation, you were able, which is the ideal scenario to find the exact thing to do that you love doing that you get paid for. And that's when we know that people are the most satisfied. But there's something about you, Zach, that I picked up on. And to our listeners, he didn't know I was a psychologist after all these years, right? Which is, I think, is so interesting because that means he just knows me as an average person. And there's not a lot of people that know me in that capacity. So I kind of knew Zach only as not a teacher, but this fun guy at camp who kind of like ran everything and the kids gravitated towards. So there's something about you, Zach, that you produce or you gain the connection with these children and these students. So what is it? Like if you had to label what those tools are that helps you maximize connection with these kids, because it's so obvious when we see it. I don't know what the word is or what you feel in that. Can you describe that to us? Totally. So obviously the initial response to that would be that it's different in different contexts, right? Mm -hmm. So at camp, establishing a connection with a camper or with staff members or with administration is sort of a a little bit of a different process than it is in a school setting where you're trying to establish a connection with high school students. But regardless, even though they might require different approaches, I think that connections are ultimately always rooted in respect. Mm -hmm. So if, if you establish a sense of respect and maybe also like a sense of safety, then that really facilitates the process of being able to establish a connection with another person, regardless of their age level. But specifically with teenagers, there's a couple of things that I think over my career I've noticed have gone a long way in terms of establishing that sort of a connection. The first and most important would be creating a safe space. In the particular course that I teach, there's a lot of feedback. There's a lot of critiquing. And I think it's super crucial to teach teenagers how to be receptive to critical feedback. 
talking about things that they can do better and not getting defensive and just taking it in. But in order for that to even be a possibility, you have to make them feel safe and you have to make them feel like they're not being judged for the wrong things or for the wrong reasons. So I think that once you're able to do that and you're able to earn that trust from them, then they're more willing to open up and create a connection or be more receptive to the things that you say or ask them to do. Do you feel, having been doing this for so many years, do you feel that this current generation, either after COVID or leading up to it, do you feel like it's harder to build that trust with them? Or do you feel as though these kids are craving somebody in their lives outside of their you know, immediate family, if they're lucky enough to have that or fortunate enough to have that? But do you feel like it's harder? Any teacher who says that it doesn't get harder as they get older is not being 100% honest. I think that if nothing else, just being more and more removed from their culture and their age mm-hmm. makes it more difficult. But I also think that, yes, I do think that this generation or you know, just more and more as the years progress, I see more of a guard or more of a wall that's put up that's more difficult to break. But it is always possible, right? Like human beings are all able to empathize and sympathize with one another and relate to one another. So I I think a huge part of it is just learning to pick your battles and understanding what the boundaries are so that you're able, again, to sort of establish that mutual respect, to feel safe, you know, being honest and open with one another and knowing that, okay, if he's asking me to do something, it's not because he's trying to make my life more difficult. He's asking me with a purpose and there's a reason behind it. And if I don't know what it is, I can just ask him. I think that doing those things and just making those efforts really go a long way, especially with teenagers. And I kind of want to just throw in, you know, a lot of the things you said, it just seems rhetorical almost. Like, of course, there should be respect. Of course, you want to create a safe space. And as a parent, I think I speak for most parents that it would be innate in us that those are part of the tasks that we have and try to adhere to day in and day out from the second they're born. But for some reason, we get beat up, if you will, from our children because strictly because of the nature of our role. So to have a teacher that these kids can rely on without even realizing that they're relying on someone that they can open up to and not be assholes, for a lack of a better word, when they're getting that critical feedback. Um, I would love to be a fly on the wall in your classroom when you're giving any of the kids, but specifically my two kids, critical feedback. If they're taking it and they're responding with respect to you, then let me tell you something, bravo. Because in this house, when I give critical feedback, you don't even want to know what I'm hearing (laughs) back from them. And I have pretty good kids. No, I totally understand all that. But it's really funny. I have said to students before, you know, if you're going to put forth effort into something that I ask you to put effort into, I'm more than happy to reciprocate the effort in a way that's going to make your life easier. So if there's something that you want, or if there's an argument that you've been having with your parent, and you think that like a positive phone call or a positive email can help with that, if you show me that you're trying hard or, you know, doing your best, I'm more than happy to take two or three minutes out of my day and try and do something that's going to alleviate a stress somewhere else in your life if that's something that I can do, right? But the funny part about that is, and hopefully none of my students listen to this because this is sort of like a spoiler, but sometimes I have to do the same thing for parents. Sometimes a parent will express frustration to me and say, you know, I just wish they would understand why this is important, or I just wish they would understand why it needs to be done now. And for whatever reason, 
by being the parent, like you were saying, it just automatically shuts their ears off and shuts yeah, them down. Falls and on deaf ears. Exactly. So if I can help a parent get a message through to their kid that is important and that does mean something to them, then it's equally as fulfilling for me to be able to facilitate that part of their relationship because oftentimes, and I'm finding out more and more as a new parent myself, we just want what's best for our kids. And when they don't listen, it's hard to watch them fall. Sure. Without throwing anyone under the bus, obviously, do you see in yourself, Zach, what a special role model and teacher you are compared to some of your colleagues who I'm sure they're wonderful educators, but that extra edge that you have from the compassion and mm-hmm. empathy standpoint and how you really do connect. You know, we've all had that one special teacher, yep. right? That we always point to. And even you see, even celebrities in the public eye, when they give speeches, yeah. they're always at some point, they're thanking that one teacher. And it just seems that you are that teacher for so many yep. students locally here. Um, and and I, I hope you recognize that. I really appreciate that. I don't often recognize that in myself. I do get more caught up in just the craft and the constant attempts to get better and to refine and to do the best that I can. But I have had moments where I'm able to just sort of take in students' grandiose achievement or a student finally recognizing their own potential or achieving something for the first time. And there is a sense of ripple effect that I definitely feel and is a huge part of what fulfills me in doing what I do. But I wish I saw myself to be as great as I have often heard other people say I am. But I do think that a, you know, a sense of humility is also part of what makes somebody good at what they do. So it definitely doesn't go unappreciated. It means the world to me to hear people tell me what I've meant to them or how I've been able to help them achieve what they're trying to achieve. But I just love what I do. And I happen to think that most people who are best at what they do love what they do. As Rachel was asking the question, that was the next thought in my head, right? And you're so humble about the impact that you do have on these kids. And it is so obvious. It was striking to me as I was listening to you talk, like, why aren't there more teachers that are connecting at this level and, you know, are able to step outside of the tasks that they have to achieve or the goals that the kids have to achieve in order to meet requirements or what have you. And then it got me thinking to just the bigger issue is that there's so much going on and there's so much pressure on these kids to perform and to maximize their potential, while simultaneously a lot of the teachers are under that same pressure to maximize their potential, to get these children to perform at the level that they need to. The system is broken, right? And so I kind of wanted your thoughts on that because obviously it's not so broken if Zach Goldstein can step outside of it and we all know that there's one or two here and there that shine. So what's going on? that we're only able in schools of 3,000, which means that there's probably like 400 teachers, and I'm not good at math, so I just made that up, but of those teachers, there's one? I mean, come on, what's going on here? So I think that it's a couple of things. First of all, I think that you described the situation really accurately. A huge part of the answer is the fact that it's never been harder to be a teacher than it is right now. It's never been harder to be a student than it is right now, and even more so on the latter. Being a teacher is hard. There's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of formalities. There's a lot of hoops to jump through. There's a lot of trainings and annoyances that I often say, like, I wish I could just push everything out, 
close the classroom door, just be in my room with the kids doing my thing. Like that's the ideal, but it's not the reality. So yes, it's hard to be a teacher. And again, if it's not something that you love, I mean, 50% of new teachers quit within the first two years. So it's definitely a difficult thing to do. So to expect or even want someone to do more than what's required of them, if they don't love it, I can totally understand why they aren't able to sort of take the time to build those sorts of connections. But for students, it is a totally different ballgame than when anyone else in sort of our age realm went to school. The level of competitiveness is unquestionably unhealthy. and it's visible in the kids. Let's stick with that, right? Let's kind of just park our cars now on the corner of audacity and advice. And let's break that down, okay? You as a teacher who is beloved by all your students are admitting here that the competitiveness is at an all-time high to the point that it's unhealthy. And yet you still absolutely love what you do and you want to motivate and help these children reach their maximum potential. So, I mean, I'm kind of asking for the recipe. This is the secret sauce here, Zach. How are we balancing the fact that we're in a time of utmost competitiveness The kids are at a time where they all, for the most part, in your class, let's say, are high-achieving students. They want to succeed, but the balance is so tipped in probably the wrong direction. And this is where we need your help. So give it to us. Share the secrets here. What's the magic? Totally. So I think that, first of all, like I said, it is super hyper competitive. And regardless of whether it should or shouldn't be, the reality is that it is. So Mm -hmm. teaching kids how to combat that and how to maximize their efforts is crucial in order for them to feel any sense of success. But I think that the key to all of it is, like you said, balance, right? I think that now more than ever, we really need to be careful with where we're encouraging kids to place their efforts. Mm -hmm. Because especially in recent years, kids want instant gratification. They don't see the fruits of their labor almost instantaneously, that it's really hard to get them to buy back in after the first try, which is part of the reason why I love teaching speech and debate, because it's something that they can take and apply in the outside world almost immediately and see what the skills are able to acquire for them. So the value is almost instantaneous, and that makes it an easy sell moving forward. I love that because we live in a world, even from when our kids were infants, right? That everyone got the gold star. Everyone got a, a blue ribbon for participation. Everyone was a winner, right? And as parents, we were picking our kids up when they stubbed their toe or they scraped their knee and you're okay and you can do it and get back out there and da, da, da. And nobody learned how to have the right skills to deal with the fall. We we hear right. all the time as adults, it's not about how you do when you're winning. It's how you handle the setbacks, the failures. I personally think, Zach, and I don't know if you can make this like a debate topic, but the rebuttals of life, maybe that could be a course, right? How to succeed as a failure, <laughs> right? How to 
how to pick yourself up and not be the winner, but how to lose gracefully. Mm -hmm. I want you to speak to that a little bit because I see it and I don't want to throw my own kids under the bus, but the biggest thing as a parent that I am trying to teach them is how to have coping skills and what those coping mechanisms are when things aren't all green light, clear roads, smooth sailing. That's not life. Okay, but did um, you it, listen to your mom? Or are you now not, saying as not. an adult, like, well, you know what? Wait a minute. My mom wasn't all wrong. I should have listened to her then. I do have to admit that the day that my daughter was born, I called my mother and I said, 10 fingers, 10 toes, beating heart. Oh, and by the way, you were right. And she said, about <laughs> what? And I, and I said, everything. Um, listen, I will admit that the hardest part about being a teacher, and I've only been a dad for 18 months, but so far I can definitely say that it's the same struggle. You know, the hardest struggle about being a teacher and the hardest struggle about being a parent is learning that you have to let your kids fall so that they can learn to pick themselves back up. And again, I think that that's a major perk of teaching speech and debate. Kids at first would rather do literally anything (laughs) other than get up in front of a room and speak in front of their peers. They'd rather speak in front of anyone but their peers. So one of the first things that I do in that class is I give them an assignment where they are, I don't want to say forced, but forced to get in front of the room in front of their peers and consciously make themselves look silly. Mm -hmm. And when they all inevitably say to me, why are you making us do this? I say, because after this, it's all a cakewalk. Yeah, it's easier. You've made yourself vulnerable already. And I think that's such a big part of all of this. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the vulnerability piece of these kids. And when they break and they don't have the resilience, they've exposed that piece of them that they tried as parents to protect them from ever having to experience those yucky emotions. But then I get, when we don't have a teacher like you, Zach, I get 10 years later those kids who aren't having successful relationships or they've lost a job or they're struggling in college or they, God willing, didn't take them 10 years from that point, but you know what I'm saying? And they don't have that resiliency. They don't have that grit. They don't have that ability to pick themselves up. So it almost gives me hope. I mean, it does give me hope and, and, and a sense of relief as a parent that there are still people that are finding those important characteristics that we need to focus on and not getting caught up in the rat race here. Still, you're teaching them life skills. And I always go back to that, that we are good at teaching math and science and and history and all of this stuff, but we have been so terrible at teaching life skills, coping skills, emotional intelligence, relationships, communication, which is the debate piece of it that you are doing. But just failing. What is that like? How do we make ourselves vulnerable? How do we pick ourselves up? How do we persevere? How do we realize that not everything is going to work out the way that we want it to, but it doesn't mean we're not going to get where we need to get? I definitely think that I get a unique opportunity with my job and with what I do to have sort of mini moments where we can almost mimic real life moments of stumbling and falling I say to this uh, to the kids all the time after they give a speech, and when I can tell that they're visibly shaken or frustrated or stressed out, I always say to them afterwards, still breathing, mm. because it's important to remind them, okay, sometimes the only way out is through. 
but mm-hmm. you are through and you're still breathing. And not only that, but you kind of did a good job on your way here. And that's a huge part of it also is I think that developing that comfort with vulnerability is ensuring the fact that you're always going to celebrate their success as much as you're going to recognize the failure. And you're always going to stay supportive despite the failures. And you're always going to remind them of what they're capable of and how great they are and what they can do because it's easy for them to forget in those moments of failure. So it's Mm -hmm. important to be there in order to remind them that, okay, I totally can validate the way that you feel right now, but I'm also here to remind you of how it's going to feel later. As you were talking, as a parent, I was sitting here thinking to myself how difficult it is for me, because I think I contradict myself a lot. And this is where on the podcast a lot, Dr. Boke and I have our own vulnerabilities that we share with the listeners. And I'm going to share it here with you. Ironically, you know, you're my kid's teacher. So you're getting a little insight here into what goes on in my mind. I sometimes feel that I am hypocritical because on the one hand, from that intellectual standpoint, I recognize and understand the value of how important it is to let these kids fail and to figure it out. And okay, you got an F or you got a C minus, figure it out, chum up right? Like it's not the end of the world. Do better next time. But on the other hand, the angst that I have Mm. that we're only as happy as our unhappiest child and that innate feeling to want to make it better, to want to be their sounding board, to let them take it out on you. Should I be emailing the teacher and what can you do for extra credit or to not worry so much about these kids? I wonder if you can speak to that. What are the tools for the listeners, us as parents? Because there is an imbalance in recognizing letting them fall, but then not even knowing as a parent what that looks like. What does that mean? So first, I should probably remind you that I've only been a parent for 18 months. So I'm not sure that I necessarily have all of the answers. And like we were saying earlier, it would be nice if they did, but kids don't come with manuals and every kid is different. So it's always a struggle. But I think that, you know, it's almost the same advice that I would give a student. I tell students all the time, have faith in your hard work. Mm -hmm. As a parent, you've done your best for however many years it's been up until this point. And the best you can do is the best you can do. And if you know that you're an inherently good person, and if you know that you've tried to instill those types of values in your children, and you've seen that come out of them in different areas of life, then I think you just need to have faith in your hard work and know that you've built a strong, capable, intelligent young kid who is ready to combat the challenges that the world's going to throw at them. What do you think would happen, Zach? Like if we role played out now, you have a classroom full of kids, you're giving them a topic to debate out or they have to write a speech or how, I don't even know exactly how your structure works. But what would happen if every kid in the class got an F? You all failed. You you didn't follow the rules. Would it be pandemonium in your classroom? What would happen to these high achieving kids if they did put the work in? They worked their asses off. They thought they were following. Dr. Boca and I, we've had, we had an episode on this. Like they did understand the assignment, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. But then they got the rug pulled out from them because that does happen in the real world. You know mm-hmm. what? You thought you got it right, but you got it wrong. You all got an F. Oh, well, what would that look like? So I would be lying if I said that I've never taken a team into a competition really confident and, you know, left the competition 
really surprised with the outcome. I'd be lying if I said that every lesson I've ever taught has gone super well. And I'd be lying if I said that anything is ever perfect. But having said that, the first thing that popped into my mind when you you know were describing the situation and said, every single kid got an F, even though they put in the work, even though they did you know trust the process. My very first thought was, well, if every single kid in that room got an F, then that's not as much of a failure on their parts as much as it was on the teacher. Oh, Zach, that, uh, that right. wasn't the answer I was looking for. Right. Well, <laughs> well the answer, the answer is almost never. Yeah, right. well, I mean, the answer is never convenient, though, right? And right, right. Honestly, I, it would make me look back at the process. It wouldn't make me question the level of effort or the direction of process that the students went through. It would make me question, okay, well, where did I go wrong in the way that I described the process to them? Or where did the process go wrong in guiding them? step by step on how to achieve this specific goal. That's what I did at competition when, you know, we walked in thinking we were going to get first place in every event and left without a single trophy. It motivated me to reinvigorate the process and reassess the effectiveness of the process. And once we did that as a team and, you know, sort of did some trial and error, we found a process that worked more effectively and that produced the types of results that we wanted. So it, it's funny because as you're saying that, I was thinking, you know, when Rachel posed this, I'm like, oh, you know, what would that look like or what have you? And my first instinct was kind of along the lines of what you, Zach, said, is the anxiety of these kids failing is really because I believe if I got into the head of a lot of these kids is because they're looking at this as, oh my God, now I'm going to get a B. And if I get a B, all the other kids in another class or another school or the kids that I'm competing against to get to that next level, which is usually college, but it doesn't have to be, didn't get that grade. And now I'm at a disadvantage against them. That's where my head went. And then I'm thinking to myself, all in the span of you talking, right, is what a fucked up system we have that these children can't fail because we have made it so that they then can't get what it is that all the other days of the year they have worked towards in such an amazing, effortful, focused, and driven way. And I go to, and congratulations to you, Zach, that you would look at the process and look at yourself. I'm saying we have a much bigger problem. Like you're a piece of that process potentially, just as so are the parents. But the process it's fucking self is broken. We should not be killing these kids for trying to trip over themselves, hurt other kids, i.e., try to pull the rug out from under them and try to not tell them what day the test is or, you know, hope that they fail or that they don't show up or that I win because they threw up in the middle of the debate, whatever the scenario is. Like, what are we teaching our children? We are literally making a system that makes not being perfect, okay, and I put perfect in quotes because I don't believe in perfection, but this idea of perfect a literal setback and a way that they can't achieve something that they want and are working hard. When we were young, we were told hard work pays off, right? We were told that, or you can achieve whatever you set your mind to. And that instilled hope for us. I can't actually say that all the time to my children. I do. I say it to them. And I, I still believe that the people that work hard and, are, and show effort, good things will come to. But I do understand how some of these kids internalize this experience because of a broken system that we're perpetuating. 
Yeah, I wish there was a more elegant way to put it, but you said it perfectly. The system is just completely fucked up. I mean, it yeah. it's so, you know, like I was saying, it's so hyper-competitive. And it's funny, you know, a little bit earlier, we were talking about hypocrisy. It's interesting. I watch a lot of my junior and senior students applying to colleges, right? And now it's not as much on the colleges to like look at all of their data and information as much as it seems to be on the students to kind of put together a resume, which wasn't mm-hmm. even a thing when I was applying to college. And of course, you know, I have students come to me and ask me for help on how to word things on their resume. And I find myself guiding them and, and trying to help them shape their words so strategically. Mm-hmm. It almost echoes of, you know, when I see a student putting a lot of effort into not cheating, but like being less than honest on mm-hmm. another assignment. I say all the time, like, if you would just spend half the amount of effort doing it the right way, like you would spend half the amount of effort getting the same goal, you know, result that you wanted. Then I turn around and I'm helping them manipulate their resumes to give them the best possible chances of getting into college at the expense of being 100% transparent and honest. And it really does speak to how fucked up the system is because the sad truth is, and again, maybe you know it's a lesson to be learned about the realities of life. If you're not willing to do those sorts of things, it might mean the difference between you getting what you want or someone else getting what you want. That's a harsh reality to hear you say it in black and white. But if that is what the realities are, you know, it's sort of like don't hate the player, hate the game, Mm -hmm. right? I want to talk though about when too much is too much or at what cost, because when you have students who are so emotionally and mentally wrapped up in these processes, right, we lose sight of what's really important, right? And prioritizing, or we've talked before on other podcasts about figuring out a way to have a paradigm shift. And as a teacher and an educator, you you have such a beautiful way that you're able to tap in with these kids and connect with them to kind of see what that paradigm shift is, to put things into perspective. If someone's physical health is now at stake because of their emotional and mental well-being or the lack of their well-being, I mean, obviously that's when too much is too much right? That's a huge cost that that's not worth it. What signs do you look for in your students where you're now able to recognize, whoa, this is a high achiever. This is a really smart kid. They're on a great trajectory, but now I'm starting to see some things that I'm not comfortable with. I need to get involved now as a teacher that they can relate to. I've made a safe space. I know I can give this critical feedback that they're not going to get angry and aggressive about. But you need to intervene now as a teacher of authority and someone who truly does care about your students. I think that a lot of the telltale signs are are pretty easy to recognize. Obviously, when a student expresses some sort of feeling of overwhelmingness or sort of just flustered about their day-to-day work, I try my best to sort of recenter them and ask the right questions. A a red flag for me is when I see a student in my class who hasn't done the work that I've assigned, but is doing work from another class Mm. or for something else. Um, Because 90% of the time or 99% of the time, the students respect me enough to do the things I ask. Because I always make it a point to explain what the value is behind what I'm asking them to do. And they've had a relationship with me long enough to know that I'm not going to ask them to do something without a purpose. Mm -hmm. So if they're choosing to sort of disrespect that by not doing what I asked them to do and doing something else for someone else during the time that is supposed to be ours, that's usually a sign of, okay, 
they don't strike me as somebody who would go out of their way to make me feel disrespected. So there's a good reason behind that decision. And I need to figure out what it is so that I can try and pivot them and focus their efforts in a way that's going to get them back on track and caught up with the work or whatever it is. Um, a lot of times it's as simple as making a list and just saying, you know, you can only do one thing at a time. If you try to juggle 15 different things at once, you're only going to be able to give one fifteenth of your effort to each thing. So just making a list and crossing one thing off at a time can feel oddly nice. Rachel um, loves I her list. She loves her list. I love my list too. I love my <laughs> list. So sometimes it's that easy, but other times it's things that I have to accept are beyond my control. Sometimes it has nothing to do with the workload. Sometimes it has to do with the realities of life and you know having to choose between doing somebody's assignment or having the energy to go to work so that you can help support your family after school. So, you know, that's why it's so important. And I try to stay super conscious when I approach different kids about different issues. I try really hard to remind myself all the time that every kid is different. And if you try to approach any two kids the same way, even if they come from the same household, Mm -hmm. um, it often will not yield the results that you're looking for. So you just have to treat each relationship in each kid uniquely and adapt your approach to fit the need of the kid. And I love that, Zach, because it's such an important point. And our listeners who have children, they understand that two kids are not the same two kids, even if at the same age, And you know, um, when my daughter was 13 versus when my son is 13, those they're not the same kid. It doesn't matter. So I, I love that. And I love that you are so aware of these things. And that you take the time to check in with yourself, right? And kind of come at it with a lens that's clear. It is disheartening that, again, we have set up an environment in these schools right now where teachers don't always have the space, the resources, the time, the energy in their classrooms of 36, 40 kids shuffling and bustling around, trying to hit all the objectives for them to be able to even recognize those pieces of it. And so I commend you on that, which is one of the things that I think makes you so special in all the roles that you play. The other thing that I wanted to kind of acknowledge is as a therapist working with adults, people say to me all the time, why don't you work with kids? For our listeners, I start at 18 and my sweet spot is the college and graduate students. So when they leave Zach, they come to me, but I work now all the way up to 60s, 70s, whatever. But I worked in college counseling centers before I went into private practice. And what happens typically is they leave the nest and they wind up going to college and now they're on their own and they really are lost in a shuffle of now, you know, 25,000, 50,000 people and they're on their own and they have access to a lot less restrictions and a lot more things and they fall apart. They decompensate more so now than ever before. But my joke is I don't work with kids because you have to work with the parents, right? So I might as well just work with the parents. And I wonder, do you find that you can have them and you can build that trust and that safety during that time with them. But then they're going out to that job that, you know, they have to pay and raise money to bring back to their families, or they're going to a home life that is destructive and threatening and unsafe for them. Do you find that you're pushed up against those realities? And how do you handle that? It's definitely a a difficult aspect of the job. It's not every day. It's not every student. And to clarify, like it, I didn't necessarily mean that every kid who struggles is struggling for reasons like that. A lot of times, it's just 
being stretched out too thin. Sure. Um, you know, trying to stay competitive with extracurriculars and community service and Absolutely. all that sort of stuff. But one of the hardest parts of the job is one of my college professors always used to say, it's not taking your work home with you. Yeah. It's taken me years to be able to genuinely empathize with a student who's really going through a struggle that I, I'm very minimally capable of helping with and being able to come home and not obsess over it and not worry over it. Because even though it is for two hours and to a degree, like only having them for two hours every other day is part of why building the relationship is that easy because you really only have so much time to spend with each other. So you try you know, to make the best of it. I think that not bringing work home with you is important in order to be fair in your equitability for all of your students. Mm. Because if you develop a sense of over-responsibility for something that you really only have minimal impact on, mm. then it can really drag you down emotionally, which of course impacts the work. Mm-hmm. So it's hard sometimes because you do care and, and mm-hmm. you don't want them to fall. But certain things are just beyond your control. So what helps me sleep at night is I just tell myself that I do the best that I can. I give them what I have. And when I'm out, I'm out. I'm trumping Rachel right now because I want Rachel to hear what you just said because I give Rachel such a hard time and she doesn't buy that comment when I say it. But like being a parent, she's not going to buy it from me, but she's going to buy it from you. We do the best we can do, Rachel. We do the best we can do. So all those times that you self, you know, doubt yourself, I want you to remember not what I said, but what Zach said, because you're going to listen to Zach. You're not going to listen to me. Well, it's so funny because my comment, and I don't know if this is selective hearing or if I'm just compartmentalizing my role as a parent and how I maybe critique myself. I was actually going to give Zach a tip that we learned from a guest we had on a previous podcast about this was a professional who deals in a space of grief and mourning and loss. And we had asked this particular individual, how do they not take that Mm -hmm. heaviness home with them at night. And her response that kind of resonated with me was that while she is doing the job she's doing, she's giving it 110%. And she starts every day by lighting a candle, like a tangible act of something. And the space is being held and she's in it with them. But at the end of the day, she blows that candle out and goes home and she's able to, I'm making this word up, but decompartmentalize or leave it in the office. And then she's able to go home and just be mm-hmm. who she is with her family. So I'm sitting here <laughs> saying to Zach, like, you know, yeah, you're doing the best you can. You're the beloved teacher to all. And then go home and be a, a dad and, and a husband. Lori, it's interesting that you took that to say, okay, Rachel, see that you're doing the best you can as a parent. I wasn't even looking at it from my standpoint. And I will take that advice, but it is really, really hard. And I don't want to undermine those students out there that legitimately struggle with what we defined as struggle when we were growing up. The ones that have potentially broken homes, there's Mm. not a lot of money. They have jobs while their parents have two, three jobs. They've got to take care of a little kid, a sibling, so on and so forth while their parents are out. They've got to make dinner. I mean, that's real hard knocks. And I 
can identify with that. And I want to kind of separate that that's big time struggle. And wow, from my vantage point, um, and it sounds kind of, you know, ignorant to say the struggle that I see with maybe some of the contemporaries in my world is the struggle of the emotional angst that these kids put on themselves. Maybe the parents put on them unbeknownst to them. They don't even realize that they're part of the problem, right? That they're Mm -hmm. not part of the solution. I've said before, I never want to be that parent that, and then, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then somehow I look in the mirror at the end of the night and say, oh God, was I that parent? So that's my angle, the struggle I look at. Again, we're only as happy as our unhappiest child. Are we part of the problem or are we part of the solution? And how do we bridge the gap? Well, so I think that it's super important to, and Dr. B, you're the professional here, so you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think struggle is relative. And I I don't think that any type of struggle is, you know, worse or better or harder or easier necessarily. I think that something that is a struggle to you, whether or not it's a struggle to somebody else, doesn't speak to the validity of the struggle, right? So if it's something that's tearing you up or stressing you out or making you feel overwhelmed, regardless of what it is, if it's happening to you, then that's enough to make it valid to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's an important part, which is why I say, you know, uh, back to Rachel's point is when you're wondering, are you contributing to it? That's why I work with the parents, right? Because I'll leave the kids to Zach, but the, and I am half tongue in cheek there, but I do think that we just as parents, we have to be able to do what Zach does, right? And that is, obviously we can't say, oh, we don't see it. You know, we're done for the day. We don't get that luxury, but we have to be there, build that trust, build that safe space, be able to let them vent to us. They're not going to necessarily listen to us and, and listen the way they listen to Zach, but be grateful that Zach is there, right? Or whatever teacher that is, or whatever role model that is, or whatever mentor that is, we have to work in tandem with them. I think that's the valuable piece here is that there are people out there that can help us and everybody's, we think, we hope everybody's doing the best that they can do. And that was the only reason I highlighted it because we were joking before about if, if a teacher says it or Mr. G says it, then it ha- then it's legit, but us parents don't say it. So I wanted you to know, Rach, that you're doing the best you can do. And I always say this, Zach, I don't know if you've listened to the episodes, but even if we do everything by the proverbial textbook that doesn't exist, right, the way that these children will see it through their eyes, two kids in the same family, two best friends, kids that grew up, you know, in different areas of the country, it doesn't matter. Everybody's going to take it through their worldview and their early childhood experiences and their home life and what they've seen and what they've been exposed to. And they may internalize even the greatest parenting or the greatest teachers or the greatest experiences as fucked up and wrong and not good enough. And so we just have to be prepared for that. But I do also understand Rachel's mindset of almost like never feeling fully satisfied with the job that she's done sure. because to a degree that's what keeps us sharp right it's funny the the motto that we've established for the debate team and it's been a couple of years now since we have speaks to both ends the team motto is always proud never satisfied if mm. you know that you've done your best then you should have a sense of pride in the work that you have produced Absolutely. but failing to feel a full level of satisfaction is to a degree what keeps people successful. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you sort of need a degree of that in order to stay sharp and in order to stay high achieving. 
But if you have too much of that, or if you you know refuse to recognize achievement or success, then it works against you. So that's why I love that motto. It's one of my favorite sayings. The kids make fun of me because I say it all the time. Always proud, never satisfied. But I think that honestly, that's a good summary of the process that we've created in order to get to where we've gotten to. I love that. And it reminds me of when you hear certain people say things like, no matter how proficient they are at their craft, they say things like, I'm still nervous, or I still study, or I still you know, get butterflies, because you never want to take your eye off the prize. You always can, you know, you have that little, little spark and drive to continue to do better. You never want to, I say to my kids, you never want to rest on your laurels. And I know, gee, you always say, as we're learning here, and I've heard my kids say it too, always proud, never satisfied. I say to my kids, be humble. No matter how confident you think you are in whatever you think you're confident in, there's nothing better than than having a little bit of humility. You know, there's mm-hmm. a fine line between cocky and confident, and I cannot stand cockiness. You know, and, and I'll just tell you here, again, the, the, this debate course and the debate team that my kids are involved in, I think, is, is such a platform for success in the future and how they tackle everything, almost to the point that we joke around now, I used to be the great debater in the house. And now I've got <laughs> two kids who, no matter what we're talking about, whether it's dinner, whether it's politics, whether it's schoolwork, whether it's vacation, whether it's the subliminal or the sublime, somehow we're having a debate about everything. So as much as I love you, G, sometimes I I'm am so just, sorry. you know, I want right. to put you up on the cross. And I'm going to say, I'm a selfish bitch. I'm never letting my kids take debate because I don't want to fucking deal with that, right? Well, to be fair, and I'm just trying to protect myself here, at the beginning of the year, I, I dangle the carrot in front of the kids and I say, if you listen to what I tell you and if you, if you follow the process the way that I say, you'll never lose another argument unless the argument is against someone who says, because I'm your mother and I said so. Uh-huh. So I do tell, I do give them that Thank disclaimer you. up front. Okay. <laughs> I All love right. that. Well, then I'm going to start. I felt like we had graduated from that. I mean, we have some serious, great debates around here, but I didn't know that I could end my time on the clock by saying, because I'm your mother and I said so. I'm going to try that tonight and I'm going to see how well now. that sticks. And if, if it doesn't work, then you have my permission to give them that F because I want to see how they thrive by failing. I keep coming back to that because I feel like that thread is so important with these high achievers. And I wonder what you're seeing on a day in and a day out basis. You Listen, when we grew up, there were kids in the class that were high achievers. Mm-hmm. There were the middle of the rotors. And then there were the people that, you know, were in the back of the pack. I'm wondering now in the world we live in with this high competitiveness, what are you seeing numbers wise? Is everyone a high achiever now? Do low achievers still exist? What's happening in mainstream high school these days? So there's two answers. There's the answer um, referencing the data and what's on paper. Mm-hmm. And there's an answer regarding the reality. On paper, everybody's a high achiever. Because mm-hmm. if you aren't, then you don't get rated as an A school, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you don't get bonus incentives. You don't get high enrollment in upper level classes. I mean, those are all things that, again, speaking to the fucked up system, things that you need in order to be a high functioning school. So on paper, everybody's a high achiever. But in reality, it is scarily similar to the socioeconomic 
issue that we have in this country. You're seeing a bigger and bigger gap in the middle and larger growth in the two ends of the extreme. Um, you know, the, a good example of this, and I've seen it at multiple schools, uh, not necessarily the one that I work at, but at others where they've completely gotten rid of honors classes. So mm-hmm. students who are too smart for the mainstream, but aren't quite motivated enough for the college level classes, they have nowhere to go. So now they're forced one end of the spectrum or the other. Are you okay with being lazy? Are you okay with getting an A in an easy class? Or do you want the prestige of this upper level class that you probably aren't ready for, right. but that might give you an edge when you're filling out your college application? Which one do you want? And when you literally let the teenager decide eight times out of 10, they're choosing the easy route. Absolutely. I don't blame them. I I would would choose the easy route too. So it's a big problem and it's getting bigger. And again, I'm seeing it more and more across all schools. They're just forcing kids into one or the other. And it's not, to be honest, for the right reasons. You know, it's it's so interesting that you say that because I've been in the South Florida school system, at, you know, as a teenager, I was here and I used to say to people, my experience of the of the schools were the kids that were in the highest and the kids that were in the lowest were all fine. It was that middle tier that if they didn't have the self-motivation and I found myself because I chose to take those regular classes that you're saying are what we're calling honors, but they were really regular because we didn't really have as many AP classes. So it was honors, regular, and then whatever the other tier was, you fell into this crack if you weren't self-motivated because nobody kind of had any direction. The teachers weren't incentivized. If you had needs, you were pulled and you were getting the attention you needed. And if you were successful, which are those high achievers now, which actually looked like pathetic doing nothings because we were so unmotivated relative to these pressured kids today, but they were considered the high achievers, you would be fine. And now to hear, as you just said, that they kind of took away that middle range, I had a visceral reaction like, holy shit, I chose to go into some of those classes because I knew that I couldn't keep up in the subjects that I wasn't good at, that I had an option to kind of hang out in that middle ground area for my mental health, for my success. You know, a B in that class was better than an F in a high, you know, high acceleration class. And to hear that that doesn't even exist anymore, again, fucked up system. We are destroying our kids and we are left with these kids that are walking through, that are highly medicated, that are turning to drugs, that are are distracted and distancing to self-soothe. And look, I'm not going to lie, it's job security for me, but that's not how I want my job security to come. I want us to be able to be these confident and capable, resilient individuals who could handle the stresses and aren't being put under these, these beakers of heat where they're going to implode. So I'm really upset about this, if you can't tell. Uh, Dr. Voke is going off the rails right now, but it really is so, it's so broken. It really, truly fucking is. But so I'm going to ask you like a, a positive question since we're going like down into the dumps here. I would be the worst teacher because I have no patience. I would be mean and angry. And because I feel like I am like the laziest perfectionist out there, I would take it personally if a kid didn't like get the good score. Like to your point earlier, when I said, if everyone failed, like, how would you handle that? Your answer was you would look at yourself and the process. I would too. And then I would beat myself up, which I know this podcast isn't about me and my children, but like, I want to have like a 
parent-teacher conference after this. We can, <laughs> totally schedule, we can put something on the book. I want it, yeah, because now that you're getting a little bit of an insight into me, maybe now you can see like, you know, Apple Tree and, and how my kids are. And, and I, I we'll, we'll do that off air. Wait, but Dr. Boga, you were asking something positive. I so was, I but I'm just wondering when you have that, does the therapist need to stay present for that just yeah, to probably. assuage anything that, yeah. that transpires? Okay. Yes. So, so Zach, what is your greatest joy about being a teacher. Like there's got to be joy because nobody would do this to themselves at this point. So what do you find to really be that uh, inside of you? I think that there's two things. One is sort of more egotistical and the other is a little bit less. I think partially it's feeling like I've been a small player in what is otherwise a really large, complex life experience that has led someone up to their moment of achievement. To feel that I've in any way sort of contributed to that or facilitated that is really rewarding and it, and it totally strokes the ego. But I think the most fulfilling aspect of what I do is having the privilege of being there for the moment when someone recognizes their own potential and they see it come to fruition in real life. Mm. And it's not always pretty. Sometimes it's actually pretty ugly. I, I've mm-hmm. definitely had situations where a student has said to me, I, I just can't get up there. And sometimes they're right. They can't. But most of the time I say to them, I'm not asking. And it's not because I, I want you to be uncomfortable. It's because I know what you're capable of. And if you trust me, trust me when I say that you don't. And I haven't seen you try. Mm. So sometimes when you earn that level of trust and faith and they feel the fear and they still jump because you told them to. See, it and is, I'm interrupting you because because right there, it's I even just your voice was calm and soothing. And as an educator, my guess is that you say to them, you know, listen, you've given them that safe space and they trust you. And you're saying, look, I know you can do it. Get up there. Yeah. Whereas a parent would be like, God Get damn it. Fuck. I told you 17 times. <laughs> right. So well, right there, I can I'm like answering my own question. No wonder the kids don't listen to parents. <laughs> Well, okay. And so I want to I want to say two things. I, I appreciate that, Zach, because I think I have those moments as well. And that brings me joy in the work that I do. I can't tell them what to do, unlike a teacher, you know, in that moment. But and I appreciate that you can. But I, I understand that. And it is a magical moment when you see that potential come. But we did hit on something. You know, I'm a psychologist and I'm a parent. You know my children, right? You are now a parent, which I still have to wrap my head around that concept that Zach, who's like the big brother to my to my children, is now the parent. So how do you kind of play that hypocritical role that Rachel was talking about before, where we want something for our kid, but we as parents struggle with that ourselves? Like, how do you manage it now? And now that you're in our boat? Uh, the plan is always to <laughs> do plan. whatever we have to do. Yeah, right. right. Every day, every day is different. Yeah, I mean, I, the, plan. I, the mo- if nothing else, being a new parent has taught me that I don't know jack shit about anything. Everything is such a new learning experience, and there are there are plenty of struggles. Um, we've been super blessed; like we have a super easy baby in general, but we are definitely entering the toddler phase, and she mm. has become, you know, she's definitely letting her personality come out a lot 
And I always joke around with my wife and say, you know, she looks like a carbon copy of you, but that means that we're in a lot of trouble because it means <laughs> she's going to act like me. And I don't know how to combat somebody like me. Uh-huh. And I, and, but to be, to be honest, I think that it's like being in a relationship. I think that when you're, the, when you have the luxury of being the teacher, it does come with luxuries. You only have to see them every other day. It's only for two hours. Right. So, you know, you're both on that same page, both being the teacher and the student of, okay, well, we only get so much time together and we have so much to do. So let's try our best to be efficient. And like you also mentioned, the parent doesn't have those types of luxuries. So like being in a relationship, when you're on the outside looking in, it's a lot easier to be mm-hmm. um, objective and even sometimes influential. But when you're on the inside looking in, it's really, really hard. I find myself having to choose all the time between what I want to do and what I know I have to do. And sometimes I just have to play rock, paper, scissors, shoot with my wife to see who has to do it. (laughs) Who has to be the bad one that day. I'm going to say before when you said that you tell your students, no matter how great of a debater they are, that if they get a rebuttal that sounds like, because I'm your mother and I said so, I'm going to tell you that I feel as though you're going to end up using that whole do as I say, not as I do routine. So it'll be a fun, fun thing to see down the road. I know you have a little baby girl, but when she's older, I can't wait to have you back on the show to see how you're toggling and how you're juggling the struggle of a teenager, not to mention a teenage girl to boot. Dr. Bogue, I know you want to jump in for final thoughts, but I I do want to make a comment. It would be remiss of me not to add, and I probably should have said it earlier, but this is not real therapy. We want to protect Dr. Boca's license. What we're talking about today is generalizations, And we also want to protect Zach as well from his educator hat. This is really just for entertainment purposes, even though we're getting some real great value as to how Zach is able to help maximize potential in his students, how to drive and motivate them without them falling off the deep end. And also truly, we've said it a few times now, but how to juggle the struggle that we see from an educator standpoint in a system that is potentially broken to some degree, and also how the students react to that broken system as well. So we just, we want to protect everyone. If any of this is triggering in any way, please contact your healthcare provider or reach out to your therapist in general to get the help that you need. Okay, DB, we're going to do some final thoughts. We'll yes. go around the table and see where we're at. So before I do my final thought, I just wanted to say, Zach, I only hope that when you get to where our children are, that your daughter has an educator just like you. And what I mean by that is somebody who connects Um, sees the potential, believes in their kids, creates that safe space, creates safety and confidence in them. It has been a gift that, you know, my children didn't get from you in a school setting, so the system wasn't as broken, and they were able to get the best of you in an environment that was intended for fun and excitement. But these students clearly, I'm going into my final statement here, these kids in all domains of where you are in your professional life, They are truly blessed. And as a parent, I thank you for having the foresight to know what it is that you wanted to do, to go and do it, and then to bring the best of you each and every day to that, to emulate that and care about our children and to be able to provide them 
something that we may not be able to provide for whatever reason, whether we are providing it and they don't understand it or don't see it or because we're the the enemy or just because we're incapable of providing it. So from the bottom of my heart, Zach, thank you for being here, but also thank you for being in the lives of our children. No, the pleasure is on my end. It's, it's honestly a privilege to be able to work with kids and to you know try my best to make positive impacts and make kids recognize their own potential. And I just think that it's important for parents to have faith in the job that they've done, have patience with their kids, let them develop, let them learn. And I think that kids emulate their parents more than parents often know. So if you're setting the example and you're modeling for your kids, then again, the best you can do is the best you can do. And I think that that should be enough for everybody. Wow. That's amazing. I want to share a short little story as my final thought. I don't even know if you know this, but when Ben, who's my older son, was in seventh grade and we were working on the schedule for eighth grade and we saw that debate was a class that he could take as an elective, I said, my God, Ben, this would be so great for you. I really think that this is something that you would thrive at. And he kicked and screamed literally and and figuratively that this was not something that he wanted to do. And he fought me every step of the way. But I held my ground and I said, no, no, I really think that you have some potential here. And the first debate, I don't even know if it was a tournament or whatever it was, I had to drive him to an after school event somewhere and he had to get all dressed up and we got out of the car. It was right after the middle school had been dismissed and there was a million kids in the parking lot and I grabbed his hand to walk him in. Well, that was my first mistake. He (laughs) absolutely wanted to disown me right then and there on top of the fact that he was mortified that I was even quote unquote making him do this. And he hated it and he hated it and he'll probably kill me if he even listens to this podcast, but he was really emotional about it. And I said, just stick with it, try it, just give it one try. And here we are, you know, three, four and a half years later, he's a junior. And never did I realize that he would now be under the guise of you and your craft and as his coach now and his teacher on this debate team. And he absolutely loves it. And again, sometimes you got to let these kids kick and scream and fail in order to see their potential. And I'm not even taking credit for the fact that he loves it now. I'm giving you that credit that you have really molded him into a great debater to my chagrin here in the house but certainly to see him soar outside with this craft of his that you've really given him the wings. And I want to thank you for that because it's been a joy to see. And without you, I don't think that we would have had the success we've had. And by we, really, I mean him. So thank you. Well, he came to me with a lot of talent, if we're being 100% honest. And I have to say two things. One, I'm sure that he has since come to you and said, Mom, you were right. I was wrong. I should trust you more. I bet that you've already had that conversation tenfold since then. I'm sure of it. If I know Ben at all. Um, well, that's my sarcastic, that's my sarcastic tone, And I, I was going to say, I wouldn't say exactly like that. But, you know, maybe little drips and drabs if I can catch him after I've fed him a meal fit for a king. And I'll say like, so remember that debate tournament when you were in eighth grade that you hated me? You know, a little bit. But that's only if I'm pulling it out of him. Well, I think from a teenage boy, that might just be the best you can get and you should settle for it. But the second thing I did want to tell you is when you were telling that story, it's so interesting. I had literally just mentioned to you that kids emulate their parents more than parents often know. I have often seen Ben 
speaking to younger members of the team about branching out and trying new types of events that they might not necessarily be 100% comfortable with. Because your son in particular, he is a national qualifier caliber debater. He's been to national speech and debate tournaments for a very specific event type. And at the beginning of this year, he forced himself to try something new and he has since excelled in that secondary event type and has chosen to dedicate himself to that permanently and establish himself in that role on the team. And I'm watching him encourage others to try and do the same. And it's literally just like you were saying to him. So it's a perfect example of how children do often emulate their parents, but Sometimes it's just in ways where parents don't get that opportunity to see it come out. So it's just another awesome perk of doing what I do. And, you know, just the small world that we're in, I get to share that with you. And it speaks to the job that you've done. Well, thank you. I mean, I wasn't saying it for you to give me the compliment, but sure, lay it on, lay it on. That kid is really high achieving. There's a lot of compliments to go around. And by the way, Rach, it might be the only way you're going to get the compliment. Let that give it to you. Vis-a-vis Mr. Goldstein. I know. I I can say to, and now if you want, I mean, I know the listeners are probably like, all right, all right, already. But I say we just now, let's say something nice about Lori's two kids and my other kids. No, I don't. Lay it all on. No. I don't want the trophy for everybody right, on this right, right, call right. because that would right. be a disservice to our children. Right. We have no, to teach them grit, just yeah, having yeah, fun. Totally. Anyway, totally. Zach, you are amazing. And thank you so much. Rachel usually does the closing here. So I'm going to give it to her. I'm going to let her have it. She's going to go for the win today. Oh, shucks. Now, well, we're all winners, even though I think what we're getting out of today is how important it is to remember it is perfectly okay and quite frankly required to allow our children to fail. If we create a safe space, if we give them constructive criticism or feedback where they know that it's okay to make some mistakes, but also if they're lucky enough to have an educator, someone like Zach Goldstein, that can be a resource for them. Not just parents, because, you know, as parents, we definitely sometimes get the short end of the stick. But having an educator like Zach, where they do feel safe and they're able to get that feedback and they're able to grow and learn and ultimately succeed from some of those setbacks, it's it's so valuable. Zach, I cannot say thank you enough for your time, your wisdom, your attention. Again, we'll have that parent teacher conference at a later date. I can't wait to chat more with you. But I know on behalf of Dr. Boca and myself, hanging out with you this morning on the corner of Audacity and Advice has certainly been a great debate. You win the debate today. We're thrilled to have you. I always say a guest of the show is a friend of the show. You are welcome back anytime. We always love picking your brain and I can't say thank you enough. DB, final thoughts? Well, Zach, come back when your daughter is our kid's age. That's the open invitation for you. I'm listening to every episode so that I can get some tips and tricks because, frankly, I'm terrified. But we'll see how it goes one day at a time. You've got it. You've got it. I know you do. So Awesome. All righty to our listeners, thank you again for joining us on Unpolished Therapy. Check us out on social media at Unpolished Therapy on Instagram and on Facebook. And we will see you next Wednesday on the corner of Audacity and Advice. Good job, D-Bay. I love that you've been doing the closings. We'll see you next week where our wheels and yours are sure to get spun upside down. This has been Rachel Silver-Cohen, Dr. Boca, and of course, our special guest, Zach Goldstein. Have a great week, everybody. Great sesh, girls. 
Hey everyone, like what you heard? Then don't miss out on what comes next. Subscribe now and please give the girls a five-star rating. Learn more at www.unpolishedtherapy.com. Find and like them on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll see you next week when Rachel Silvercone and Dr. Boca ditch the couch, grab the mic, and break down all the wreckage.